Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? Ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punks? This is how I found you. Let me demonstrate. <laughs> this is your brain on the box. This is my brain on the box. Does anybody else feel like a fried egg?
one. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Inside Movies Galore. I'm your host, David Streggy, and tonight I am actually hosting. So, um, uh, tonight we're going to go on about a film that was filmed in 2006. Sorry about the noise, folks. Um, and uh, it was directed by... Uh, a very interesting director by the name of uh, Guillermo del Toro, um, who um, is a Spanish director, I, I, I believe, correct? And, uh, yeah, uh, so, uh, so the name of the film is called Pan's Labyrinth, and it is all in subtitles. And uh, I'm just going to uh, read off a uh, synopsis here. So in the Phalangist Spain of 1944, uh, the bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. So, um, uh, Jacob, um, when was your first, uh, uh, was this a first time watch for you or, or was this um, a, a, a new watch for you? Well, this was definitely not my first uh, viewing of this film. Um, I believe this was actually the film that introduced me to Guillermo del Toro. I'm not absolutely certain that I saw it first, but I'm about 99% certain. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, the film was very much uh, a heavily talked about heavily uh the critics were raving about it when it came out and i was really really into reading critic reviews and everything in the early aughts and i made a point one night to get out and do some serious oscar viewing and i actually went and hit three movies in one night i went to the local art house theater and watched the queen and followed it up with pan's labyrinth and then on the way home, I went to another theater and watched Dreamgirls. So that was actually a pretty impressive movie night. <laughs> uh, I have seen Pan's Labyrinth at least one time in the interim when I added it to my collection. <laughs> and in the run-up to this, I watched the Criterion release, uh, Trilogia de Guillermo del Toro, which has Kronos and uh, Espinosa de Diablo, The Devil's Backbone. And I watched each film. I've watched every bit of on disc extras. So if you count the commentary tracks, I watched each film two additional times, three for Devil's Backbone. So yeah, I've definitely seen this one a, a little bit, and uh, it, I just I instantly fell in love with it. It's still my favorite Del Toro film, and uh, just a really good one. <laughs> okay. La, 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 la. Okay, over to uh, Brandon. Uh, what uh, uh, was this a first time watch for you, or um, was this a rewatch for you? And what were your uh, first impressions of it uh, this time around? If uh, it's definitely not my first time watching this. Matter of fact, I want to say I saw it in the theater because it was the first film I ever saw in subtitles on the big screen. I just don't remember where I saw it in the theaters. Um, I know I've seen it at least 
twice since then because I got I, I had gotten one copy of the movie and then I got the Criterion one for this particular uh, podcast and I decided I was going to go ahead and uh, start with that. Uh, so this will be my third time viewing it, I believe. Okay. And first impression was very different from what I had thought it was going to be because it looked like almost an Alice in Wonderland basic fantasy, but it was much darker and more serious than I had thought it was. So when I saw it this time, I knew what to expect. And... Uh, I think I, I liked it much more this time around than I did the first time around. So uh, it, it's still a wonderful fantasy horror film, and that's my uh, my first thoughts. <laughs> I, on the other hand, did not see this in the theater. Um, this was my second time at least viewing it. Um, uh, because the first time... Um, uh, believe my fiance told me about it. It was one of the ones that she had seen the trailers for and eventually one of us picked it up and then later I picked it up because I liked it. Uh, but I, ha I have not uh, seen it since. So for this viewing, um, I watched it again and I liked it a lot better than I did the first time because um, I, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with subtitled films. Uh, and uh, it's like I can, I've, I've grown used to re uh, reading uh, films a lot, especially since I used to have a mentor uh, that was uh, given to me by the state who would purposely take me to subtitled films. And uh, uh, through his eyes, I was able to see a, a lot of films like uh, The King of Masks and... Um, uh, films of that nature, and that, that's how I kind of got into a Kurosawa. And uh, uh, later on, I saw this uh, film, and it wasn't until I'd seen The Shape of Water that I'd realized one of the creatures was actually, in fact, the creature who played the creature. <laughs> so, um, but um, I overall. I definitely thought it was a definitely darker, uh, a darker feel. So, having that fairy tale like quality, it's it's definitely different. So, um, uh, now that we've gone through our uh, first impressions, uh, uh, just so you know, folks, the, uh, the uh, a spoiler warning, so that uh, it, all of you out there will know that uh, we'll probably be going through some items. Uh, uh, items or characters or uh, whatever you want to call, uh, call it, we'll probably be <laughs> talking about more than you would probably uh, think you would uh, you would talk about in a general discussion. So, um, moving on to um, uh, the plot. Um, so, the plot is basically uh, this little girl who has an imagination and loves to read, and uh, she ends up in a situation that was not of her own making. Uh, so, what do we think of the little girl, first of all? She's a fascinating character, and uh, I always thought Ivana Baccaro did a phenomenal job. I think it's one of the best uh, child acting performances I've seen. The uh, 
But she basically is, you know, like you said, she has a really powerful imagination, and she has a mother who's completely dismissive of that and goes to live with a stepfather who's beyond dismissive of imagination. He is all about order and control. Yeah. <clears throat> now, what about yeah, you? I, I agree. It's a, it's an amazing... To me, I think that she is a great central character uh, for the basis of the film, and it is because of that uh, imagination and uh, her love of fairy tales and such that uh, I feel like they could have made the twists in terms of this movie possible. Okay, well, let's look at the background of the story. So, uh, apparently there's a fairy tale in the background uh, 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 where uh, uh, there's this daughter of the underworld that uh, that has either been lost in time or um, her soul has, uh, has passed on. And uh, there is a prophecy that she shall return. And uh, so... When she saves this uh, this um, rock on the statue, it's like that was the uh, the initial point of where uh, where apparently the creatures of the forest believed that she was in fact the uh, the 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 heir to the throne. So, um, what do we think about that fairy tale back uh, backline where she's this royalty to this underworld. Well, it's, it's very cool, um, but the uh, one of the themes that runs throughout the movie, and you, you talk about her finding the stone, uh, there's a theme that runs throughout the movie, and it's in the narrative, and I've definitely heard it in the discussions with Del Toro, is that this is a world that is available to those who know where to look, who know what to look for. And she saw the stone in the middle of the road and recognized it as something different and went looking and found the statue. And then when she saw the insect come out, she recognized it as a fairy. She didn't see an insect, she saw a fairy. And whereas to you know, any adult pretty much in the movie, they just don't see these things. Okay. And what about you, Brandon? Uh, I mean, I agree with that. Uh... I feel like the uh, fairy tale setting uh, really is a great setup. First off, it sets up an excellent fantasy piece, but also uh, I agree that uh, having the mind of the child involved in this, um, again, fits well to that and just the whole characterization of the tale. Okay. Well, um, because it has a fairy tale background, it also has something to do with reality and what is happen happening uh, again we ha we have these two uh, two military fa uh, factions that are apparently fighting against each, uh, each other and uh, one of them is like a resistance ki uh, kind and the other is kind of like a a um, a, a army base type uh, encampment where you know, the one is there and they're providing food for, for the villagers or whatever, wherever they are. And, um, the general in charge is, in fact, the stepfather that you aforementioned, Jacob. What do we think of his character? Uh, he's a nasty piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose 
monthly almost. <laughs> right. Well, Del Toro definitely talks in the interviews about because he was making the film a fairy tale, he kind of stripped the characters down to their essentials. He, they're pretty much archetypes, but they're really well thought out, like well-developed archetypes. And um, there's also the thing of uh, this film is sort of, it's actually a companion film to Devil's Backbone, and I wonder if we shouldn't have done that first, but or whatever. But uh, both of them, the main antagonist, is pretty much a stand-in for uh, Franco's fascist regime in Spain. And this guy definitely is a stand-in for Franco and his cohorts. And, uh, yeah, it, it definitely comes out as a broadside against fascism. <laughs> well, um, I'm sure we can t uh, definitely talk about the, uh, the connection to the devil's ba backbone a little bit in detail uh, later on. Uh, at least that which uh, maybe you know, uh, Jacob. But, uh, Brandon, uh, what do you think of the character of the stepfather? Well, I, I've, I've discussed this with, uh, I think, with uh, Jacob earlier on. I considered him almost cartoonishly evil at points. He does have a backstory. He does have a drive and a personality. But it's definitely overshadowed by how nasty he is. I mean, he literally is that evil step-parent from, uh, from the fairy tales, which, I mean, is pretty much what he's meant to be. Well, yes. Right. And, uh, I mean, just showing, I mean, uh, just at that first scene where they're, they're confronting the hunters who are hunting uh, for rabbits and just shoots them. Uh, and then they bring up the rabbits and say, well, don't get me unless you've uh, thoroughly investigated it all the time. Well, he shoots the I man mean, smashing the other one's face in with a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, I, I feel like it's just a, he, he was almost cartoonishly evil in that, in that method. Okay. I mean, yeah. still, I mean, he still has some depth, but definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely not hard to tell he was the bad guy here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> According to his backstory, he knew the time and the moment of his father's death, which was why he kept that uh, pocket watch on him the entire time. So it's like everything had to be uh, had to be on time uh, um, uh, for him. If if anything wasn't uh, uh, to his uh, his um, perfect uh, perfect little world. If it was an anomaly, he would smite it. He would, you know, uh, tap it out. He, it, it, you know what I mean? Actually, I think his first line wasn't it was his first line. He's looking at the watch and he says, 15 minutes late." That's yeah. like I think that's the first thing he says in the movie. Yes. Oh yes. So he's he's definitely on that. Um, Time consuming, looking at the clock and making sure that everyone's uh, everyone gets to where they need to be in a timely fashion, you know, orderly. So, um, moving on to the character of Mercedes, what do we think of her? <laughs> she is a very fun character too. She's the the kind of the, the one adult who takes the child seriously, 
but she also is sort of like you could you could say sort of like the uh, the snake in the grass, if you will, for the for the commander because she is with the rebels, but she's you know under you know she's sort of like a spy for the rebels, so she's not. And, and I think I, uh, Del Toro kind of said she was sort of like an adult version of Ophelia in a lot of ways, but still different in a lot of other ways. Okay. Um, as well, what about you, Brandon? I think that really does cover it. I mean, she was that individual that was placed in there. I mean, she was the perfect spy. Uh, for later in the movie, when we get to that area, that individual who has not only the hidden, uh, well, is hidden throughout the most of it, showing uh, kindness, but also an amazing strength, that uh, there are a lot of women in Del Toro tales that uh, show that level of strength, and uh, she's definitely not the least of those. <laughs> I like the fact that she was, uh, 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 she was the person who... Uh, introduced the lullaby, which uh, ultimately was the score in the movie. Uh, in the movie, <laughs> a little bit la later, if we like. But um, I, I, I like that aspect of, uh, of her. And uh, I'm trying to uh, think whether maybe the fact that she had a knife was a similarity in the way that. Um, uh, the child, uh, 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 the young girl, um, Ophelia, had actually had uh, been taxed, tasked to find a knife, evidently within because. Uh, 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 well, let's look. Uh, let's look at the, uh, that further storyline. So, uh, because they believe that um, she is, uh, in fact, the heir to this. Uh, underworld, uh, they have to figure out whether she uh, has become human uh, or or whether she is still of the underworld. Um, so she's tasked to do uh, to do or to do three tasks in order to get herself to that place where uh, they could open the portal for her to return to her world. What do we think about that aspect of the film? Well, that's a, you know, like you said, that's the central, kind of the central conceit. Um, and actually, uh, we didn't really talk about the character of the fawn, the one that puts the task to her, but um, basically it's it's to test her mettle. It's to test her, her character, really. Um, technically, she gets two of the three answers wrong, but she gets them right because of the way she does it. Um, when a, a big, big, big part of the film is choice, and she is for each of the tasks is her making a choice, basically. Okay. Uh, what about you, Brandon? Brandon? Sorry, microphone. <laughs> uh, but a lot of it, uh, again, it, as Jacob has said, it is to test her metal. It's really to test her as a human, well, as just a being. And, of course, there is that 
thought whether these tasks are her testing herself as opposed to an outsider testing it, whether all of this is really her coming up with these tasks or whether it is the outside being doing that. Okay. Well, let's go back and talk about the characters of the bottom. What, what do we think, uh, think of the way he lo uh, 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 looks, the way he sounds, the way he acts? Um, uh, uh, what, uh, what did you think about, about him, uh, Jacob? Well, um, well, first of all, it's important, and I, I don't know if we said in the introduction that the film is actually El Labyrintho del Forno. It Pan's Labyrinth is the American title, and Del Toro uh, specifically did not name him Pan. He said that he, he, to him, Pan was more, almost more of a sexualized character. He was definitely not a character you would see mixing with innocent children. So to him, the fawn is just the fawn. Um, but the fawn is meant to be a character that could be good or bad. There's a lot of he could go either way, and, and when he's testing Ophelia, you're meant to question whether, you know, what his motives are as he goes along. Um, definitely, uh, as far as how they put them together with Doug Jones and all the makeup and everything they did, that was an impressive uh, creation. <laughs> well, um, Doug Jones was actually um, the character that played in the second task. Um, I'm not sure who, it, 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 was he in fact the fawn? He was the fawn and the pale man, and they did do that intentionally. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, and, uh, I like uh, the contrast between the two. It's like they're two different, uh, 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 uh people. On the one hand, you've got the leader, uh, 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 the, the guy who's supposed to be the guide. You know, he's he's the one who was supposed to guide her to the underworld. The second one w was supposed to be there in place in, in case she made the wrong choice. You, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, there were consequences that happened when she made the wrong choice. Twice, in fact. Um, uh, wh what do we think about the, uh, the, the mistakes that she made? <laughs> uh I thought the second time, I mean, that, that mistake at the table, uh, I, I remember watching this, I watched this with my wife the next time too, and she was just like, why are you so stupid <laughs> over and over again? Uh, as we just sat there, I was like, can you not hear him coming up on you? It's just, sometimes I feel that in movies they work hard to try and play up the, uh, incompetent child card and in horror they're really bad about it um with a child that probably should know better in many aspects and yet uh, and, and, and yet yeah. they're just that young enough that, uh, that you know uh if, even though it's expected of children to know better they do stray from their path that they uh, they are uh, they are led by, I mean, anyone who has a child knows that, that you can teach them all that you uh, all that you desire them uh, to know, but if they want to do something bad, they'll do it. <laughs> well, yeah, true, but then uh, when, when they know that their life is potentially threatened in a place where something is obviously 
not right. I mean, I know as a child, I was not the best behaved child in the world. But if I saw it was in a room with a monster and I was told that I probably wouldn't make it out alive if I touched the food that the monster had, not eating dinner or not, I would not be touching the food because there's a monster right there. I know it would I'll admit, I, I kind of wondered that at first myself, and I do still think it feels kind of like, that's kind of a, a very bad choice that she made, but it comes right on the heels of her making another choice that's apparently wrong, but it's apparently right because she finds the knife she's looking for. So on one hand, she may have thought, okay, well, I chose for myself and it turned out right, so maybe I can choose for myself again this time around. And uh, and in the interview, Dottoro said that he, this was her learning the co that her actions have consequences. And he also points out that she hadn't eaten in almost two days, and you kind of lose track of that in the movie. But she was probably very, 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 very hungry. You see that much food, you're going to want to eat. Very <laughs> true. Yeah. Also, it sets up. It well, it sets up the whole chase. And and actually, one thing I thought was pretty cool um, was that he said in the interview that he actually watched the movie with Stephen King, and that scene made Stephen King squirm with discomfort, and that to him that was better than any Oscar he could ever win. <laughs> I would imagine so. Um, but, uh, but, uh, going back to, um, uh, was there any character, uh, that we have not mentioned, uh, mentioned as of yet that may, we may want to talk about? Do we want to talk uh, about maybe the doctor character? Oh, the doctor was great. I mean, see, I always confuse him with the one in Devil's Backbone. The problem is I watched them back to back. <laughs> now, I did not know that, uh, the Devil's Backbone was actually intended piece to this film, and that's like one of the uh, one of the one Guillermo del Toro films that I own, but I have not yet watched yet. <laughs> this one in Kronos, theoretically. <laughs> well, there again, you know, there there definitely is a tenuous connection with Kronos and a strong connection with Devil's Backbone, and I guess we could probably go a little bit more into that, like in the later part, like where we talk about the overall whatever. As far as the uh, the doctor in Devil's Backbone does show up in this film very briefly, but um, the, the the this doctor, of course, is a whole different character, much younger actor too. Although he's passed away, apparently, Alex Angulo. Um, but this was another one where choice was very important, and one of my favorite parts. Well, I guess we'll jump ahead a little bit. Favorite scenes. I love the part where the doctor makes a choice knowing that he has just signed his own death warrant and he does it anyway. And that just that whole scene was great. Well, yeah, I, I would have to agree uh, because there are some people who are not designed uh, to be, you know, those who follow orders. And that's exactly what that uh, that doctor made a point to uh, to point out, and that was exactly the anomaly that uh, that uh, you know the the capitan was looking for in order to kill him. <laughs> so, um, um, what do we think about the, the the lieutenant of the captain? I mean, it, it looked like he was regretting some of the things that he was doing. 
So I think you saw flashes of conscience. I mean, they weren't really, again, none of the characters really were too ambiguous because none of them were super, super fleshed out. But you definitely saw some some idea that the, the captain was uh, the harshest of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on to a look. Locations, uh, 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 somewhat, because I, I believe that this film is somewhat of a location um, um, uh, where where we have this labyrinth that is at the end of this mill. Um, what do you, uh, what do we think of the um, in the inner circles of the uh, of the of the labyrinth itself? Uh, does it kind of remind us of uh, Orpheus and the Maze? Hmm. I hadn't thought, but it makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I think the uh, the sets they constructed for this, like the base of the labyrinth and the uh, the fantasy world, well, the the, the underground world, um, they definitely did uh, show. One of the cool things about all Del Toro's films is a wonderful visual flair, visual sense, like just the. They're beautiful uh, films because of uh, the all the influences and everything, but they're just unique. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, which uh, which uh, boils all down to the special effects. How did we feel that uh, how they did uh, with, uh, with the special effects on this film? They definitely hold up. Uh, I mean, this is this is not a this is not a young film. It's not. A hundred percent. It's not like a uh, super old, but still, for its age, they hold up very well. Uh, what CG and practical effects are used, they they mix very seamlessly in a lot of the cases. Well, I even think that there was a little bit of animation uh, involved, um, specifically in the in the fairy uh, in the fairies. Um, those, uh, uh, even though I know uh, know so, uh, some of the uh, effects were uh, CGI'd. I believe that some of it was actually um, almost like claymation, in, in a sense. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, the uh, the fairies were almost fully CG, from what I understand. I think they used sort of a uh, like I saw footage of Del Toro walking around with a long gr stick that had like a green vaguely humanoid thing at the tip that sort of was like it's almost like a green a portable green screen and they used that for a lot of the bases for the fairies um they did use a blend of effects um for example with uh, the the fawn and the pale man with both of them uh doug jones wore five hours worth of makeup and prosthetics but they use CG for touch-up here and there, particularly the eyes, and they had green screen on parts of his legs so that they could digitally erase pieces of of him to make the creatures look more fantastical. You know, just as a couple examples. But like Brandon said, they've aged really well. I agree. I mean, uh, I really couldn't see a, a whole heck of a, a lot of... Um, uh, uh, shall I say, uh, say imperfections uh, uh, b because the film really 
it, it looks really well. It, I mean, it it also plays uh, plays really well, well back in my m mind, and I can see why it, uh, why we chose it for a, a monster film because not only do we have a monster in the Pale Man, but uh, I also believe that we have a monster in the uh, the El Capitan character as well because he he emits a lot a lot of evilness. Especially, especially with what happens uh, to the little girl in the end. Right, and that was definitely one of the reasons why this was one. That, this was one that I had nominated, and I specifically had that in mind because you had the pale man, and Tom is technically a monster, not really in an evil sense, but like in a he looks monstrous. He looks, you know. And then you had the, the the idea of well, this guy is a monster. He just just he looks human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much a monster in that film. <laughs> Probably more monstrous than any of the ones that they had that look like monsters. What do we think of that end? Uh, that end uh, 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 look into what the underworld looks like after uh, we, we see the fading light from uh, from the uh, uh, little Ophelia. Well, it's impressive. <laughs> it was definitely impressive. An interesting look into uh, uh, to what, uh, what she ended up, you know, ultimately being uh, or going to. Uh, to. Um, uh, now going on to the music and the score. Um, how did how did it work? Uh, did it work with or against the film? I think it very much worked with it. Um, as you mentioned before, it, it, it worked off of um, Javier Navarrete wrote the music with help from Del Toro. Basically, the idea was they wanted to come up with a, 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 a lullaby that would be memorable and unique. And I think they did that. And they basically, and they gave that to uh, Maribel Vardu's character, um, uh, to Tom. And then they built the score from that. So it was like, and, and um, so you hear the, 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 the lullaby reflected in the score, you know, in their times where it comes to the front. A very haunting piece as well. I fits very well with the narrative. I still say, I mean, this this uh, film skirts on the borders of drama, horror, and fantasy, and uh, that uh, piece actually covers all three of them quite well. Right, I think so. I think uh, I think uh, when it came to uh, down to the section where um, or where you see the torture devices that, uh, that the El Capitan comes out with. Uh, he, he's like, N uh, uh, number, uh, number one, if, you, if, you, uh, if I uh, bring out this, we'll start to become friends. If I, uh, if I bring out this, that's when we will create a bond between each other. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, and it's like you, you, you can almost feel what the, uh, the prisoner is, is feeling as he's describing how he's going to torture him. Uh, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm not big for torture, but the way they just they, he describes it, the way he gives that explanation, when and we get to this one, the third one, he's like, then I will believe what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to this one, uh, then uh, no matter. Uh, Anything that you will say, I will believe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, the fact that, you know, that kind of a torture isn't far from how we torture people in this day and age, you know? I mean, it's it's not that far fr uh, from some of the many action films that, uh, that, uh, that you see, uh, see when someone is captured and they're trying to torture them for information. Uh, it, it, it's not that far, uh, far from any other te uh, techniques, but the way that he sa uh, says it and, and the dawning of realization that, okay, I'm fucked. <laughs> you know? But, uh, w uh, Brandon, what did you think of the uh, um, way, uh, way that uh, the El Capitan uh, went about to extract his information? Well, I feel like that was uh, just as was said earlier. That's a uh, way to show how evil he is, or how how he is. Just like what's the word? I don't necessarily consider him necessarily as much evil in that as just a machine almost. But uh, no better way to show how much of a monster a person is than to show something like that, like torture, things that we are very uncomfortable with. When you show somebody that is very comfortable with doing things that we are largely uncomfortable with, that tells us this person is not a good person. <laughs> Most definitely. Definitely. Is there anything else that uh, uh, any of you uh, uh, feel like we have not touched on this film as of yet? Uh, actually, one of the things that drew me to the film more than anything else at the end of the day was the fact that this film played with your own senses, as you would have to keep guessing over and over again is this really going on or is this all in her head and there are many times that you look at the film and you say well wait if this is all in her head how come this happened like with the maze how she gets to the center of the maze how how did she get there so quickly if he was right behind her if this was just all in her head well, again, I think that kind of goes back to what Jacob said about how, uh, remember uh, the, uh, when she was trying to complete the se uh, uh, second ta uh, task, she supposedly had not eaten in two days. What makes you think that she ate anything since? Oh, again, it's not whether she was, <laughs> I do feel like there was a part of it there. It's just uh, you still have that point where you think to yourself, it's sort of like the movie K-Pax. For all the things going on with Kevin Spacey, it kind of left you guessing as well. Maybe he was an alien, and in this movie, it leaves you guessing a little bit as to maybe there is some uh, truth to this. Uh, maybe there is, 
Like, how was she able to get out of her room to get to the baby if the room was locked? Uh, and you see this, the chalk out room. And that's a very, a, a very good instance because the captain actually sees the chalk. He picks it up and examines it. And it's and this was something that was given to her by the fawn. So yes. it is sort of, in a way, it's, he also sees the mandrake root. He doesn't see it moving, but he sees the root and he has to pry it off this plate which it had grown onto. So those were evidences uh, where even he was seeing evidence of the magic world. But the fact that he was blind to magic overall, you can see at the end scene when he confronts her and she's right next to the fawn and he doesn't see the fawn. So, you know, so again, that has to do with, you know, can you look and see what you're looking at, you know? I agree. Uh, the fact that, uh, that you know, this El Capitan uh, can see uh, just a tiny bit, uh, uh, although his, his mind is more calculated, it's more cold, so he's not really seeing the, uh, the, uh, the magic, but uh, but you definitely have a good point there, J uh, Jacob. What, uh, what do you think, Brandon? Well, that's, that's the idea, is uh, that because there seems to be some evidence of the fantastic in the real world, it leads you to doubting Whereas most of the movie feels like it's indicating that this is all in her head. But it also kind of makes the ending something something that could be completely different in a lot of ways than looks on the surface. So though it's a sad ending, it can still be a bittersweet ending. Well, yeah, this is very much a movie where the ending depends on what you bring to the table yourself. What you think happened depends on what your own mindset would be. I tend to be very hopeful, you know, more of a, I guess, sort of a romantic type. I like happy endings. You know, I look at it as, well, obviously, she was reborn in the new world, but you can easily see how a cynic would look at it and go, oh man, she just died for nothing. And it's, it's, it's all to how you read it. Well, I like to think, uh, think that this, uh, this film had, uh, had, uh, had several messages. On the one hand, uh, you've, you've got the doctor that, uh, that cannot follow, uh, uh, cannot be the, uh, the kind of person of the, uh, the uh, El Capitan wants him to be. Uh, be. You've got the the uh, um, the fighting that's going on, on uh, where it, it's obvious in the background that the other side is winning. You know, you know, and uh, um, on the other hand, you know, the, the, you got this little girl, Ophelia. Evidently, she doesn't know who her father uh, her father is. She only suspects. Because uh, because of what this creature, the fawn, is starting to tell her, you know, and uh, I believe that her imagination runs wild with her. So uh, so while these bad things are happening, while, while her mother wants her to call this El Capitan her father, uh, she's seeing the evil uh, that is within him, and so she escapes into this world. And you almost feel like every time she steps into the world, it's like it's like she's sidestepping some of the evil, in a sense. You know what I mean? 
Right. I mean, each per each person can only deal with so much bad in their life. So I feel like, in a sense, that her imaginary world was almost like her crutch or her her Lionel's blanket, so uh, so to speak, throughout the uh, film. But she had all these steps to go through, uh, through and I think it was teaching her um, how to become uh, how to become the person she needed to be to get to that other world. <laughs> uh, but uh, is there anything else that we haven't covered? Uh, do you think? Well, one thing that's very important uh, in any Del Toro film is uh, that we haven't really talked about. We've kind of touched on some of the visual, you know, effects and stuff. But one thing that's very important in his films is the camera work, the cinematography. Uh, he, is, he has worked with most of his films. He has worked with the same cinematographer, Guillermo Navarro. And he talks in the, um, in the uh, bonus features I watched for Kronos. He talks about, with Kronos, discovering what he thought was his best color palette where he basically uses ambers and blues for the most part, and he only uses red when it's very important to show red. And in this movie, he made a very conscious decision to show blue and cool colors for the real world, and ambers and warm colors for the fantasy world, and as the movie goes on, they start blending together until by the end you've got plenty of warm colors in the real world, you know, so I just thought that the visually it was really important, and he won the Oscar for the cinematography, I, th I think fully deserved. <laughs> I think so too. And Del Toro, we, we uh, I mean, we haven't, we touched a little bit on his other pieces, but Del Toro is such a varied individual with what he's done. Uh, actually, even when I look back to it, I think about Peter Jackson and some of the range that he has had, but uh, Del Toro has had quite a range, uh, whether it be uh, his uh, work on this, or with Hellboy, or Mimic, which of course is his favorite film of all time, uh, yeah. well, being facetious of course, or, or even his work in crafting the extremely horrific and uh, creepy tale and video game format for P.T., um, it is a, like I say, uh, he, he is a quite a, an interesting artist. Um, <laughs> one that you sometimes don't know exactly what to expect every time. I, I think there's some things you can expect. Uh, he is very, very, very in, enthralled, really, with the, uh, the gothic, with uh, the, the grotesque and, and the uh, unusual. He, he loves unusual, um, like he likes to invert characters, like the, you know, because um, the Capitan in this one is a good-looking guy. Uh, Jacinto in Devil's Backbone is, is, you know, I'm sure most women look at him and go, oh, he's gorgeous, you know, and then you get um, his heroes, tend to be people like Hellboy. You know, they tend to be a little bit, you know, he likes to do that. He likes to have 
the one that you would look at and, and go, oh, well, that's obviously the villain. Well, obviously, now he's got to be the hero. You know, he likes doing that kind of thing. Um, and there's a lot of different uh, little things that kind of run throughout. He also really likes working. If he has a good experience with one person, he'll work with them again and again. You know, we mentioned Guillermo Navarro and Doug Jones. Doug Jones, of course, is Abe Sapien in both Hellboy movies. He was the creature in Shape of Water. Uh, he did a little bit of work on Mimic, and that was where they first met. Um, you know, he's got uh, Federico Lupi, who starred in Kronos and Devil's Backbone before he, he plays the father in the magical realm in this one. You know, there's a lot of, in Ron Perlman, you know, Hellboy, he's been in several Del Toro films. So there are definitely some things you can kind of expect, but you're, you're right in terms of, like, plot and and where the film is set and where, you know, there's a lot of variety. So, um, what other connections are there to the uh, to the uh, Devil's Backbone and the uh, the, the um, well, you know, the uh, the other film? Devil's uh. Backbone was actually set during the Spanish Civil War. This one was set exactly five years later, which he made the film five years later. So he kind of did that on purpose. But um, this one's set just after the Civil War, but on the tail end of World War II. So you have that one part in the film where they talk about Normandy and that sort of thing. Um, but Devil's Backbone is set in an orphanage in the middle of nowhere. Like this one's in the middle of verdant forests and hills and rain and all this stuff and Devil's Backbone is like it's it looks like a set from a western and by the end of the film it feels like a western it's a, a vast flat expanse the orphanage is in the middle of nowhere no trees no nothing it's dusty it's sunny interesting that's not the first uh that's not the first Film that he did, uh, did, uh, did I thought with an orphanage, or maybe maybe I was uh, thinking of something different. Uh, yeah. Orphanage or orphan or whatever it was called. Yeah, I think that one. Um, I think he had something to. Uh, yeah, he was an executive producer behind the orphanage. He was a producer, yeah. Right. Well, he actually he that too. <laughs> He calls Devil's Backbone his first movie, but it was actually his third movie. Basically, he hates Mimic. He, he disavows it. He doesn't consider it one of his films. And Kronos, he loves the movie, but he felt Kronos was all practical effects, which if you watch the film, it's impressive. But he had no budget to do what he wanted to do. Devil's Backbone was the first time he got to do what he wanted to do. So he calls it his first movie. But it's <laughs> basically they were originally going to be a trilogy, but he never got around to making the third one. Um, and basically Devil's Backbone is one where the ghost is, you know, you would think is the monster is the scary part, but the ghost is very sad, very pathetic character, and the real monster, again, is Jacinto, who's the Eduardo Noriega character, and he's basically a proto-fascist, he's not, uh, wants to be a fascist, but he doesn't have the drive or intelligence to do it, you know, <laughs> and, um, and it was just, it was a really good one, uh, 
it, it's it's a much more of a slow burn. Like Pan's Labyrinth is not exactly a fast paced movie. No, it's not. But, but, I it's a burn as well. Yeah. But um, it uh, much, much faster than Devil of Backbone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it does have an unfortunate postscript, which makes me wonder if there was a third movie, what Ophelia, if what they would have said of her fate. Because, and Brenda, I don't know if you caught this. There's the one scene with the rebels where they pretty much destroy the rebels they come across. And that's where they capture the stuttering guy. And the guy that just glares down the captain before he is shot through the hand is the, the exact same actor who played Jaime in Devil's Backbone. The, the dead one next to him is the actor who played Carlos. And Del Toro said that, you know, it probably is the same characters he he, he he leaves it open but he hinted that yeah this is probably what their fate was so it's like yeah that's kind of a sad postscript <laughs> <laughs> well i that known for this curious and now i'm curious to go back and uh, and uh, watch the devil's backbone just to see what uh, what you know what happened there so uh, so it's almost like a pre story to this one so the uh, one was very specifically a gothic romance this one was very specifically a fairy tale what's up was the devil's background subtitled like this one? Yes, it's also Spanish. Okay. But in a way, it's kind of like what Tarantino did with Kill Bill. He basically did one, although these are much more tangentially related, Kill Bill was much more one story, but it was like he took a basic idea and did two very different genre types, but, but hybrids, because he never does a straight genre either. But it's kind of like he did a, he did like a martial arts revenge flick and then followed it up with Spaghetti Western, but it was still the same basic world and everything. And so it's kind of similar here where they were playing with genres, and I thought that was kind of cool. Okay. Um, is there anything else that, uh, that we want to touch on uh, before we um, possibly wrap this up here? Um, um, oh, oh am I, I guess I am on. Um, I know I talked earlier about the scene with the doctor. Did anyone else mention any of their favorite scenes? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we can, uh, we can do that, uh, before we, um, before we advance. Um, Brandon, why don't you tell me your favorite scene in the film? Or scenes, if you uh, want to say more. Well, my favorite scene overall would probably be the one that I thought was the visually most impressive, which was the scene with the pale man. To me, that was the most uh, horrifying of the, the pieces of the movie. But I just uh, was amazed at the full visual quality of the scene, how well it holds up today, and how creepy the, uh, the monster is. Uh, to me, that uh, that to me sticks out as probably my favorite of the um, movie. That would have to be my second favorite. My my favorite scene, and I'll let you, uh, Jake, go next. Um, my favorite scene was the part in the in the very end where 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 the, uh, well 
where the El Capitan brings out his watch and, and was like, uh, I want you to tell my son the exact time of my death. And uh, Mercedes is like, I'm sorry, you, you, you won't even be remembered. Your name won't even be spoken. I mean, that, that to me was like, Okay, now he got his, <laughs> you know. But uh, but still, it was it was sad what happened to the little girl. Um, go ahead, Jake. Yeah, and actually, um, that was something I meant to say when I was talking about how he likes to invert tropes and invert characters. Like in On Devil's Backbone, uh, Jacinto's most human moment is not long before he gets it in the end. And this one, the captain, that was his most human moment, where he is just straight up, take the baby, I know I'm doomed, take him, just tell him when I died. And then, like you said, they said, nope, nope, he won't know who you are. <laughs> and I, But that was like his last moment, you know, and, 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 and I like how Del Toro said it in the interviews, he's like, that killed him even before the guy shot him he was dead before the gun was fired and i liked that i thought that was really cool but i actually i did like the end partly because of that but i just liked i think i was just kind of awestruck that the movie ended the way it did i was like wow they that's a very nervy <laughs> ending, you know it's kind of um Again, choose your own ending sort of thing. Like, do you believe that she is now a princess in this realm? Or do you believe that she's just bleeding out in the moonlight? You know, that's kind of... Uh, it, it, it was uh, amazing that they were willing to do that. And you know, if, he, if, if Del Toro had taken Hollywood money, you know that never would have happened. So that's like... <laughs> but... Um, yeah, and I'm trying to think if there were any others that really jumped out at me. I mean, there's a lot of little moments. I mean, there's a lot of just little things here and there that were just really good. And I just, but that was, that was probably those two, that and the scene with the doctor, just the dignity that he had at the end and, and all that. Um, those were probably my favorite parts, I guess. I would have to say those are my uh, my favorite three to, uh, too. So I, I guess we are all in agree agreements with, uh, with those scenes. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, before I move on, uh, there was a moment where uh, where I thought that the Al Capitan might have actually taken Mercedes as a lover, almost because he uh, he let his hand just kind of. Uh, you know, slide down her body in a way, a way that uh, uh, you know, while the mother was uh, was pregnant. Yeah, you know, there was a moment where I thought it could have went there, you know, but it didn't. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And again, if there had been Hollywood money, it might have gone there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, you know where the Al Capitan would have a mistress. <laughs> so, and then it's worth mentioning. Uh, talking about the funding of the movie, the financing of the movie. One of the producers on this was his longtime buddy Alfonso Cuarón, who, of course, is uh, also very famed as a uh, artistic and very very talented director. 
Um, Masking on our recent. <laughs> yes, yes. But this was the year, really. This was the year, 2006. You had um, uh, Del Toro was up for Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Cuaron was up for Children and Men, and um, there uh, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaratu did uh, Babel. And the three of them are, are supposedly like the three amigos of, they're like the Steven Spielberg, Francis Coppola, and George Lucas of Mexican filmmaking. And um, this was the year that really put all of them on the map for me. And uh, of the three films, Pan's Labyrinth was always my favorite, although I liked Children and Men a lot, and I thought it was almost as good. Babel was hard to watch, but who was good? But, um, and that kind of... Uh, but I like the fact that Cuaron was a producer on this, and in the interview, Del Toro said that they were coming up short on pre-production. They couldn't even get the film started, and he went to Cuaron and said, okay, I'm going to throw down a hundred grand of my own money on this film, and Cuaron said, no, no, you, you should split it. We'll, we'll go 50-50. So they each put down 50 grand on the film, not even knowing if it would get made. They joked that they were paying 50000 for drawings. So two of them went out on a limb like that. You know, I, I give them props, you know, for that. But I, I, I just wanted to mention Quaron's involvement. I was like, I didn't realize how instrumental he was with this. Hmm. And it'll be interesting to see where uh, where Del Toro goes from here. I mean, uh, I know we don't talk a lot. We talk about movies here, but uh, I mean, Del Toro's recent uh, partnering um, with um, Kojima uh, in uh, video games, uh, which, of course, what could have been with Silent Hills, which uh, I know, Jacob, I know you saw the uh, live action. Uh, yeah retelling of uh, Del Toro's uh, PT. Uh, you saw how creepy that was. But uh, also, what is uh, coming with uh, the uh, new, um, with some of those new projects as well. Well, y'all know what his, uh, his next project as a director is, right? Uh, that would be the uh, um, not right off, not right off hand. Um, he's doing an a, a, a stop motion animated Pinocchio. Okay, which, that's got to be crazy. That will be yeah. crazy. I, I mean, uh, and it looks like he's doing a, a TV series called Worlds and Vill Villagers, and it looks like a remake of Nightmare Alley. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, noir. Almost, uh, I think. Yeah. Yep. It is a remake of the 1947 film. So interesting. So, um, but that, that I'm. Uh, I think uh, of 2019. That's one of the ones that I'm going to be looking out for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd like to see him tackle noir. That could be good. I mean, I wonder how he's going to do the whale scene. I mean, that's uh, that, that, how dark can he make it, you know? <laughs> how dark? Well, it could be, it could be like uh, the Alice we were talking about at the start of the, uh, uh, the discussion, uh, said the white rabbit. <laughs> well, 
Uh, to me, the story of Pinocchio uh, by Disney was definitely a darker tone than you know. In reality, I mean, you, I mean, look at the 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 inside of the whale. I mean, if you've ever seen Pinocchio, you know, there's a lot of people that call it Disney's horror film. <laughs> so, uh, it'll definitely be an interesting journey to uh, see where he gets that from here. So. Alrighty, on that note, I think we shall uh, um, adjourn uh, this discussion. Uh, so, um, uh, Brandon, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, and then Jacob, you follow. Huh. I'm Septim Sen of Septim Sen versus the World. Uh, we are a movie-centric uh, page uh, dedicated to the collection of physical media. Uh, we do various things, such as Top 15's uh, weekly uh, info on what's coming out uh, on DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, and other, <laughs> uh, as well as pickup videos. And uh, most recently, uh, we've done a rather uh, good vlogcast, and we're going to be trying to come up with our very own uh, discussion Um uh, movie discussion type section, uh, which would be once a month where we discuss game-related films. So, uh, I, I look forward to that, and uh, I hope that many of you all will do the uh, same. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, Jacob? Well, I'm Jake. I uh, frequently guest on Septum Sin versus the World. Uh, and actually, Brandon, you, you forgot to mention that you posted a video on Guillermo del Toro's filmography last week. So that would be <laughs> oh, yeah, I did a complete overview of his directed works. <laughs> um. So that would be a good one to check out if you haven't already. And uh, our, I think our most recent top 15 was one where we were looking at Oscar films that should have won but didn't they did get a nod or better but did not win um the we've got i've also got my own channel uh kotobuki jake uh, also on youtube that uh gets sporadically updated once we finally get to spring and it's almost here but it's not quite here yet you'll see a lot more videos on that channel than i have done in the past <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I also do other various projects when they come about, uh, and of course, spend a lot of time collecting and watching and what have you, the videos. I have watched all the on-disc features for Criterion's Trilogia del Guillermo del Toro. I need to read the hardcover book that came with the set. And once I've done that, I will be filming some videos for that that will hopefully be posted relatively soon. <laughs> Alrighty. And uh, my name is David Stregi. I uh, host this Inside Movies Galore. But, uh, but as you know, uh, there are many of us who host uh, uh, this sh uh, show now and uh, have become part of my film family. So uh, 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 thank you for uh, uh, listening. As well, um, on the same ch uh, channel, uh, channel, I have or have been uh, doing reviews uh, with, uh, with the podcast, but I am, have now set up a new channel for my reviews specifically because my voice is definitely different than many. So um, definitely check out that new channel. It's called uh, De uh, Delusions of Grandeur. 
I am currently now transferring all of my older reviews onto the page, so definitely check out the reviews uh, uh, this time around, uh, because I'm reintroducing them um, as delusions of grandeur, uh, and if you didn't see them the first time around, you're getting to see them a second time. So uh, stay tuned, I'll have some more review reviews co uh, coming up, uh, up, and I may e even start up some um, collection videos. Uh, down the road, so, uh, so st uh, stay tuned for that. In any case, everyone, say good night. Good night, all, uh, and also tune in next week for King Kong. It's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I wouldn't stay too close to the Empire State Building, uh, anyone. So um, uh, stay tuned for that. <laughs> Alrighty. My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you.